1789 or 1942 or 9-11, if a top government official stepped in front of the people and publicly proclaimed America was a nation of cowards, he would have been run out of the country on a rail, packaged in tar and feathered at least. But that's what happened in 2009, and you did nothing. Have you become a nation of cowards, America? In the greatest show of arrogance and disdain any Congress ever showed any citizenry, your dysfunctionally elite, self-interested, non-representing representatives passed the largest spending bill in history without reading it, and you did nothing. You want them to obey your constitutional mandate and secure your borders, and they ignore you. You ask them to enforce your immigration laws, and they ignore you. You say, stop the madness of handing $300 billion of a bankrupted treasury to illegal alien welfare, rewarding them for making a mockery of your laws, and they ignore you. And now an open defiance of the overwhelming will of the people are preparing more amnesty programs. You say, stop exporting my nation's vital industries to foreign shores, and they ignore you. You say no to using your money to bail out failed, corrupt, and greedy businesses, and they ignore you. You say, implement the E-Verify system so American jobs go to American workers, and they ignore you. If your self-serving Congress were a business, they'd all be in jail now. The biggest traitors among you hold elective office. Only when they feel the almighty wrath of we the people marching in the streets from California to New York shouting we're mad as hell and we want our country back will they get the message they work for you. Wake up, America. While you were playing with the toys of your consumer wealth, you lost much more than your bloated economy of living beyond your means. You lost your representative democracy. Your servants have become your masters. Taxation without representation is tyranny. But still, you look to government to solve problems they created in the first place. You're sucking at the hind tit of a dead cow. Why isn't there a three million person We the People March on Washington? A nationwide taxpayers revolt. Thousands of cars and trucks surrounding your nation's capital, bringing your failed government to a standstill. Democracy doesn't repress power. It unleashes it to we the people. Take it now. They dictated an economic salvation plan to you. Now it's time to stick it to them with a we the people stimulus package. Require all laws that apply to the rest of the country to equally apply to Congress. Start by first removing the elite privileges that place your non-representing representatives above you, not with you. Require all laws that apply to the rest of the country to equally apply to Congress. Repeal Congress's right to vote for their own raises. Balance the federal budget. Force your legislators to do what you now have to do. Live within your means. If you don't, you're committing national suicide. Make Congress pay into the Social Security system. They make laws for it. Now they might be interested in thinking twice before they allow 20 million illegal aliens to reap the benefits of a retirement program the legal citizens paid into all their lives. Long-term power corrupts. Limit Congress from serving more than two terms. That's all you give your president. Let them search for their own 401k plan instead of the gross unfairness of awarding them their full salary for the rest of their lives after only serving one term. Stop paying for lawmakers' insurance premiums. After all, they're only part-time employees. They might pass some laws on the insurance companies if they had to find one themselves. Throw out of office every congressman and woman who didn't bother to read the biggest spending bill in history before voting for it. With the money you save from all of the above, put it into increased salary and benefits for the men and women of the armed forces. They never fail you. Start no war unless you intend to win it. 
Make English the official language of America. You talk of United We Stand, but do nothing to make it happen. Give every legal immigrant a chance to succeed. Not one cent of taxpayer money for illegal aliens. We are a nation of laws and do not reward lawbreakers. Abolish the Electoral College and put the election of the president back in the hands of we the people. Bring back universal service. Two years in the military or two years in community involvement. Ensure your future. Rekindle the spirit of America. Service, honor, and duty to country. Give your young people a chance to understand they are entitled to nothing they don't earn. Wake up, America. You've allowed yourselves to become little more than cowering spectators, watching the nation your grandparents built, the richest, most powerful, most self-sufficient republic in history, with the highest standard of living any nation ever achieved. Now in the middle of the greatest unprecedented decline in modern history. The world's only superpower can't defend its borders, balance its budget, win its wars, manufacture its own products or protect its own currency. Your total government debt obligation in the next several years is approaching the gross domestic product of the entire world. You've diminished the future of your children, grandchildren and ten more generations of Americans. On September 11, 2001, 300 million Americans put aside what divided them and rallied around what united them. You proudly flew your flags, wore t-shirts that said, these colors don't run. Then your leadership told you to do nothing. Let your professional army do the fighting. Perhaps you learned to do nothing too well. 233 years ago, the silent majority in Boston got fed up with taxation without representation and held a little tea party to prove the anger of we the people is on the march. It started the first American Revolution. Now it's time to start the second American Revolution. Take an envelope, put a tea bag inside, simple, seal it, and send it to your non-representing representatives in Congress. They'll get the idea. We're mad as hell and we want our country back. Look in your mirror. There's your leader. Phone your talk radio host. Call for a tax protest. Set your internet communities on fire with the idea. But if you decide to do nothing again, then buy a gun. You'll need it. My name is Thomas Paine. Don't give up hope, America. Your country needs a new greatest generation. Answer the call. Get into the fight. It's a good time to be a patriot. The second American revolution has just begun. I got sent that by a client. They made me realize that I should probably stop whining about what's going on in this country and start doing something about it. The big muzzle top to Isaac and Jeremiah as they enter the uh, married elite under fire from the rest of the culture. The Upham family has offered to host Shavuot in their home again, as they did last year. Praise God. So next week's class will be at their house as we study the Torah and read the various things that we read on Shavuot. Greg Upham would like me to remind you 
to order a machsor if you don't have one. Who knows what a machsor is? Two. That's good. We got two. Those two. What's a machsor? Machsor is a siddur prayer book specifically linked to a holiday. It's a specific siddur. So, if you look in your complete siddur, as we have uh, and use on Shabbat, you've got all the little footnotes that say, well, well, if it's, uh, if it's this holiday, go over to this page and read down to here, but then watch the footnote because you're going to have to flip over to this page and then all the way back over to here to do this. But if you buy a machsor for Shavuot, you won't have to flip any pages. We'll be walking right through it. In addition as well, usually the um, chazan repetition and some of the more unique, longer portions of the prayers of that day are only in the machsor. That's right. That's right. So there you go. Those are the announcements. Machsor, artscroll.com. Can't go wrong. You're talking 17, maybe 20 bucks. So just as review, next week we're actually at the uplands. Correct. On Tuesday night. That's right. And that would include women as well. Oh. This is a Canada. <laughs> <laughs> that was not Jerry Wright's sign. No, it wasn't. It. Um, yes, we'll. Uh, it's a family thing. So, uh, by all means, I'm sure we'll get an email from uh, from Greg either today, tomorrow, or the next day, um, telling us what we can bring, what time to get there, and so forth. Uh, Shavuot traditionally um, is a time since it. It's a commemoration of us receiving the Torah. Mm-hmm. Um, we study the Torah, and we normally study the Torah all night long. That's the tradition. So, you know, we, we end at breakfast and go, wow, that was awesome, let's go home. Um, I'm not going past 11, 11, 15, you know, I'm too old for that. But uh, um, I will study with the best of them until 11 o'clock, until I have to jump in the car. So... I don't think the Uphams have ever quite hit 5 a.m. on yeah. Shavuot. I think last year, uh, Jonathan and uh, what's it, Pete, were you with them? Last till like 3 o'clock in the morning or something? And Jonathan crashed, I think, at like 5-ish. Crashed at 5. But I died before I stayed up till 7, till the sun came up. Till the sun came up. So the goal next Tuesday night is to study Torah until breakfast the next day. Traditionally. If you study it with vehemence and vigor until midnight, I'll be sufficiently impressed. <laughs> well, the, um, in, in, in Jerusalem, we actually did this one year. It's so cool. We went um, uh, shul hopping. It's like going bar hopping, but kosher. No, um, and you go, and they have different places, different things. And it's very telling that all the schedules, like except for like the real Orthodox ones, they usually have like singing. Or a comedian at like 4 a.m. You know, because people making it all night long. Up, yeah. It's a little rough. But they always ended with prayers in the morning, which is really cool. Yeah, it's good to So it's a, it's a good time. Um, Rick Hergenreiter, actually, uh, we used to do a shovel here. 
and we would publish three or four questions that we would be studying that evening, and we'd invite anybody who was Torah sensitive, and or if it expressed a sensitivity to the Torah. And um, I asked uh, Scott Martin that year to MC so that I could actually participate in the debate. And um, one of the questions my wife put in was, uh, should, should we name the name of pagan gods? And the scripture says we should not. And if that's true, what do we do with Easter? And uh, so that, that got everybody roiled up a little bit. Uh, the other question, uh, one of the other questions we went through that night was, uh, what changed at the cross? And uh, the room was quickly divided into two sections. Um, one was my section of the room that said nothing. The other was Rick's, which said everything. And um, the two of us went at it for about an hour. And uh, he came over, shook my hand, and said, you're right. Nothing changed at the cross. And uh, he began to keep the Torah. It was... Um, it was, a, it was a really neat time. So anyway, that's uh, that's what we've done in the past. Uh, I drank too much wine last year, as I recall, because as the night wore on, I was just starting to fall asleep. Um, but we were uh, reading through the book of Ruth, as I recall, and it was great. Amen. We just talked about you and your family and all that. You missed all of it. God bless you. Did you take finals? I did, too. So, Woo! how did we do? I don't know yet, but tomorrow. So, what do you think you did? Let's talk about better things. <laughs> <laughs> and the sun rises. Okay. That's good. All right. Well, I, uh, I wanted to, uh, as I said, dedicate this class to, uh, to Sean, um, but I also wanted to teach it uh, specifically for, uh, for this young man here. And uh, I think uh, Colby is uh, stepping up, as, as some of the other young men are. And there's a, a bit of the depth of what we do uh, that's still somewhat murky. So I'm hoping to bring some of that to light. And I don't think that uh, Jerry has heard this, this stuff either. So we'll try and get into this in depth and give a little bit. Um, I want to talk about this uh, this part on our timeline here that we always kind of gloss over, the Gaonic period. And uh, so much happened there that affect our lives today that uh, I'm, I'm going to be regularly reviewing points on that wall. So... Um, Let's uh, quickly walk through that. I don't think that uh, your family has heard this stuff firsthand either. So um, let's walk through first the uh, quickly the timeline, uh, just so that we can get to it, because I think there's great value here tonight. Um, we start today. We back up a thousand years. And we have a tzaddik there, and that tzaddik is Rashi. Why is Rashi a tzaddik? Uh, line by line, line by line of Torah. He did line by line commentary on the Torah, and then later did line by line commentary on the entire Talmud. 
Uh, I mean, the entire Tanakh. He went all the way to Chronicles. He did the entire Old Testament Bible as it was then. So that was pretty incredible. And then uh, his commentary on the Talmud was unbelievable as well. So we back up a thousand years from him and we get to this corner. Yeshua, the Tali. We back up another thousand years, we're a thousand before the common era, and that's how you're curious. King David. Back up another thousand years, and we get to Abraham, Abraham Avinu, Abraham our father. Father, another thousand years, and we get to Noah, Noah, and then we back up another thousand years, and we get to Adam, Adam, creation. Okay. So, let's walk from there forward quickly. Adam, we have a problem. We've rebelled. We've got um, men doing their own thing. We have uh, Enoch in the middle here who walked with God and then was not. And then by the time we get uh, to Methuselah, the oldest man who ever lived, his death will bring is the name of his name, and uh, his breath, his death did in fact bring uh, a cleansing, and uh, God wiped out the planet and saved. But how many souls? Eight. Eight mm-hmm. souls came through the water. Noach, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, and their wives. And then, within about half the wall, five hundred years we start to see that men are, are once again combining their efforts against God, start to build a tower, and we have the uh, Tower of Babel, and uh, it has a unique structural point there. Pitch. It is waterproof. They've thrown pitch against the brick, and it will withstand a flood. How arrogant. So God reaches down and says, okay, well, I'll just mix up your, your language so that you can't work together like this. There was someone alive at the Tower of Babel that we revere very highly. Who was that? Shem. Shem was. And? Who's the Abraham. Zedek in that corner? Abraham. Abraham. Abraham Avin. Abraham was alive at that time as well. So, from Abraham, we have a Book of Genesis, we know all of that. And uh, down to Jacob, Jacob goes down. Joseph, Egypt, oh my goodness, the Exodus. And we have Shavuot, or the uh, giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. We've got the book of Judges entering the land. We're all about to start reading about this, and the spies and all of that. And then finally, we ask for a king. Who do we get? Shaul, same name as Saul of Tarsus. Shaul, and he's head and shoulders taller than everybody else. And he is a godly man, presumably. He actually prophesies. Um, Goes awry, actually, uh, after prophesying, actually performs a sacrifice because he doesn't want to wait for Shmuel or Samuel 
and uh, that is disobedient. He goes against the Amalekites. He does not kill the king. They do take the spoils of war and the animals and the famous story that leads eventually into the book of Esther. Samuel shows up, kills the king. Evidently an heir is allowed to uh, escape and from him is torn the kingdom. It's given to another, a shepherd. Who is it? He is what number son? Eighth. He is the eighth son of Yishai. Yishai. Or Jesse. So we have David Hamelech, David the king here, and every prophet in the Bible. All of them. Every prophet is in the second half of this wall right here. All of them are calling Israel back to repentance. They will not listen. They will not keep the Torah. And for one specific violation, they are actually tossed out of the land. And that is? Shemitah. They failed to keep the Shemitah and allow the land to have its Sabbaths every seven years, which we just read about in the Torah. And they are sent into, the Hebrew term is galut, G-A-L-U-T, galut, exile. This is galut, Babavli. Babylonian exile. The Babylonian exile, and it lasts for, according to Jeremiah, seven years. Seventy years. Who's reading the book of Jeremiah at about the 69th year of the exile? Daniel. Daniel. Spending a lot of time in prayer and realizes, oh my goodness, time's up. So he begins to pray that God will hear their prayer and allow them to go back into the land. And God does hear that prayer. And they return. Okay. No, please finish your thought. They return and there's they have an opportunity to rebuild the temple. But they and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. But they don't. They just kind of wallow around there and lose their way until two guys show up, one of whom is one of the unbelievably wonderfully mentioned men in the word of God. His name is Ezra. Ezra, he's the scribe. And what it says about Ezra, you should pray for yourself. Unbelievable. Other than Moses, I don't know of another man that's lifted up so highly as Ezra. What it said about him is extraordinary. Check it out. Well, and Ezra effectively launches um, the seedlings, if you will, of what would become Orthodox Judaism. Precisely and the daily prayers, and so forth. So the daily prayers that we pray, many of them are attributed all the way back to Ezra in the middle of this wall. Uh, this, this is really funny. I had a conversation with a Muslim friend of mine on uh, last Thursday. Apparently, the word, I'm t- telling him about Judaism, telling about how, how life in the exile, in Hebrew, the word for that is galut. And I, I keep going on, and he hears, he says, what? I said, galut, it means exile. And he starts cracking up and bawling. Apparently, Galut in Arabic is another word for defecation. And what I was thought about, that, I was like, well, you know what? That actually kind of fits that works. Really well. That can work depending on how you're looking exactly. at it. Exactly. So that's so, good. So when you tell someone you live in the Galut, you, yeah. You, well, there you, it is. Yeah. yeah. I thought that was funny. God has pooped on you. <laughs> there it is. 
Galoot happens. <laughs> yeah, yes, Galoot happens. So, the other man who is extraordinarily adept at dealing with people, providing some military prowess to building campaigns and so forth is? Nehemiah. Nehemiah. And they eventually rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. And then we've got what appears to be a silent period for a little while as we begin the period of the pairs. And these are the uh, gentlemen of whom you read about as you're reading the Pirkei Avot during these days of the Omer. And then finally we get uh, to uh, Jerusalem and well actually Israel having its own state again, its own sovereign state, and we start bickering with each other. And Rome is called in to help. Big mistake. Because Rome decides to stay. Rome solves the problem, and now we are under the thumb of Rome. They start parceling out the high priesthood and so forth, and this leads us into the terrible times where our master is born. Just before this happens, of course, in about 250, 350, before the Common Era, we've got a man who is an extraordinarily military general, and he conquers the entire world. His name is Alexander. And since now the whole world is turning Greek, the uh, Jewish community is centered in three areas on the planet. One is where we went to the exile, that is. The other one is in Alexandria, which is in the country of Egypt. And the third is in the, in the nation of Israel. And all three of those places come to, to bear during the birth of the Messiah. As we see men who come from the east. Why would they come from the east? Well... Um, if you read the story about Daniel and the saving of these wise men, perhaps they're coming from there. Babylon, that's where Jewish people are. Um, there's the flight to Egypt. So there you go. And uh, he leaves the land. The folks in Egypt asked that uh, the Torah be written in Greek. And we get from that the Septuagint at about 250 before the Common Era. So in this last half wall, we've got the Talmudic Era, as we get the rise and fall and ascension of the Savior of the world, Yeshua HaMashiach. And then 66, in the Common Era, we've got the rebellion of the Jews. And then in 70, we have the destruction of the Temple. And then finally, in 135, the final uh, rebellion and the dispersion of the Jews. The oral law, the Mishnah, is redacted and written down because the Jewish people are being put out. That is done by Yehuda the Prince. Yehuda Hanasi, Judah the Prince. And then in both places where we have a lot of Jews, both in the land as well as in Babylon, <coughs> they discuss and argue about the oral law. The Gemara is the discussions. There's a Gemara that goes with the Talmud in Jerusalem, actually Yavni, 
and there's a um, discussion or Gemara that goes with the Babylonian group that studied it and both of these together end up with two Talmuds and by the end of this period by 500 of the common era we have two Talmuds we have the Babylonian Talmud we have the Jerusalem Talmud I'm convinced that we forget this 500-year period most of the time. It just doesn't seem to be as important as we might think. And bottom line, we don't really care. Because once we get to Rashi, now we're in a time period that we understand. It's only a 1,000 years old, and we've got the plague, and we've got the code of Jewish law, we've got Rashi and Rambam and Ramban and all these guys, and we know in Europe and, you know, World War II and the, yeah, we, we know this stuff. We know that, that's the book of Genesis. We know this is the books of the Torah. We know this, it's all the prophets. We don't really care about this, but it leads up to the master, and that's the Gospels. So that wall gets short shrift most of the time. So, I'd like to walk you through a couple things on it, and uh, just by way of review, for those who have never heard it before. Um, Peter, would you do me a favor and get, the, uh, get the, the graphics that are on the printer? I printed this out so they wouldn't have to do it, you know, just from the whiteboard. Um, some of the most extraordinary things in your life today came out of this time period. And you don't know this. It's important. And we should recognize it. You should recognize the value of these people in this 500 years. One of them is my greatest hero. In 520, we begin, that's right after the middle of this uh, wall here, Justinian becomes the Emperor of Rome. Emperor of Rome. And... uh, He's quite a guy. By this time, Judaism and Christianity are definitely two different faiths. We see back here that we've got a problem that we're trying to figure out what are we going to do with these, with these Jews. Before the cross, before the Master was born, the big question is, what are we doing with all these Gentiles? The core of the Gentiles was the biggest thing. All these people want to join themselves to Israel. What a preparation for the master's arrival as all these Gentiles. And he walks in, cleanses the temple, and says, you have made this a den of robbers, but my house should be a house of prayer for all the Gentiles. So, the problem, what are we going to do with all these Gentiles, becomes what are we going to do with all these Jews as the Gentiles take over. They kick the Jews out of the land, and now this whole Roman thing begins. And it's a tough time. So, we have what I'm sad to say is forced conversions. Justinian, the Roman emperor, decides, you know, it's really important that you become a Christian. Staying a Jew is not a good thing. Christ killer, oh my goodness, lions and tigers and bears, oh my, converter will kill you. It's clever will urge you into the kingdom of God. Now I want you to stop and think if you look at the walls in thousand year periods as we do I think you'll find and you should be able to name for me 
there are forced conversions on every single wall. So let's go back to the earliest part. Let's go to this wall. Abraham to David. Where do we have forced conversions? Abraham's sons. Abraham's sons. What do they do? Shechem. Yes, the city of Shechem. Mm-hmm. Right? Jacob's sons say, whoa, you violated our sister. You want to marry her. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. But you can't unless you're circumcised. That didn't turn out too well for the Shechemites, as I recall. I'll have to go back and read that, but that's how I recall. How about this wall from David to Messiah? Where are the forced conversions? The Idumeans. What's an Idumean? I mean, does that come in a six-pack? What's an Idumean? Territory kind of around Israel, like basically modern southern Jordan, I believe. Okay. Who's an Idumean? They're like, um, weren't they like half-breeds? They were half-breeds, yeah. You have two different half-breeds. One of them are the... We normally talk about the Samaritans, yes, and the others are the Idumeans. Who are they? They're half-Samaritan and half-Jewish. And you actually had a king who was an Idumean. Herod. So the then king of Israel decides, because they're a sovereign state before Rome takes over, we don't like these half-breed guys. No, 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 no. you got to be either for us or against us. It's the like original militia. Go in, we're going to make you for us. And the Idumeans were forcibly circumcised, became Jewish. That caused problems later on. But that's a different story. And here, Justinian is now forcibly converting Jews to Christianity. But that last wall, from Rashi to you. Inquisition. Yeah, the Inquisition, right? Just before 1500, the 1400s or so, you've got the Spanish Inquisition, and these are Catholics, and they are forcing Jews to recant their faith and become Christians under penalty of death. In fact, it's that time that is the impetus for the Kol Nidre service that we celebrate on Yom HaKippurim. Okay. So, lovely Justinian, God loves you, and if you don't think so, we'll make you understand that he really does love you. Yeah. Um, So the world is split. You've got the Western Church, and you've got the Eastern Church. You've got Byzantium and Persia. And it's been that way ever since. You've still got the Eastern Orthodox religion. Those Catholics are actually practicing Christmas on the 6th of January. And their calendar's way off. So this split that started back then still goes on today. Second thing of note is 570. Anybody know what happened in 570? Would that be where you had Muhammad? Yeah, we've got the, the birth of Islam. Here's a guy who says that the angel Gabriel, Gabriel has spoken to him and told him 
all about Islam, the Prophet Muhammad, and so forth. So, Muhammad and the Prophet, Allah, Islam, 570. So we are just a smidgen in from the uh, middle of the wall there. Now it's interesting, Islam has never been known to forcibly convert people to their religion. What do they do? They just kill you. They just kill you. We don't want you to convert. If you're an infidel, we'll kill you. Because that's what the Quran says. Unbelievable. Okay. Well, it's amazing how they, um, I mean, I guess you wipe out a couple of towns like that, how many people suddenly want to join your side. Yeah. I believe that's actually, they got, they, they basically took over Mecca. Yeah. 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 You bet. So 600, we're about one-fifth of the way in now, and now we get Pope Gregory. Um, Pope Gregory, yes? The foundations of Islam, do they go back pre-570? No. Nope. They were made up out of whole cloth on that day by that guy. Tell me about the, the uh, religion of um, Mormonism. Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith had a, dream. has a dream, sees an angel. Or so he thinks. That's, um, uh, I can't remember, it starts with an M, I think. Maroney. Maroney. Italian wow, bro. Italian angel. Right? We, just, we actually found the Book of Mormon. They didn't have the Gideon Bible at the hotel. We had to have the Book of Mormon. Book of Mormon. It's Marriott. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's all I do. Really? That's yeah. why I don't stay there. Yeah. Okay, bro. So, uh, so Maroney, <laughs> in a dream, tells Joseph Smith where to dig up these gold plates, and that's the Book of Mormon. So where do we get the tenets of Mormonism prior to that? We don't. Made up. Whole cloth. Right there. Same thing with Muhammad. Other than Islam, borrowed from Judaism. Well, and, yeah, I mean, Islam has like a whole slew of things. They've got Christianity. They've got Judaism. They've got pieces of the pagan religions that were in that air part of Saudi Arabia, or whatever, where they got started. So there lots of little snippets. But yeah, it's a, not only is our faith about fifteen hundred, two thousand twenty-five hundred years older than Islam. Islam but the offshoot of our faith that we started in, you know, Christianity, is also older than Islam. Yeah, yeah no question about it. Um, if we look at Mormonism, we see in it the roots of Christianity in a torqued or a twisted version of the end times and, and the angels and the master and all of that. Same thing in Islam. You just see this torqued version of anything this guy happened to have known about. But it didn't exist prior to that. How about to Confucius, Confucianism or Buddha? How far away are they? Where are they on the wall? They're here. Just after the middle, right? As we are already now, if you take the covenant, we are 1,500 years into our faith. Buddha shows up. Big fat dude. Confucius. Really skinny dude. That's a big brain. <laughs> but um, there's, there's a quote Josh I heard from a, 
uh, Rabbi talking about when the temples are destroyed uh, within a certain time frame, you have those big, um, whether it's a an Eastern religion like Buddhism, Confucianism, it's like an outpouring of faith, is, or a period where you have Christianity and Islam as the outshoot after the second destruction of the temple. And he, he does a kind, of, he does a really good job of it. when you see that Judaism just fizzles out and and, and sees and, and, it, and experiences a big catastrophe. Normally, before or after, there's another. Somebody, somebody's going to try and fill the gap. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Okay, so that's 600 Pope Gregory. What's so cool about Pope Gregory? You want to thank Pope Gregory. What did Pope Gregory realize? Is this, is this your hero? No. No. But thank you for remembering that. I'm guessing it wasn't just a, just. Justinian? Didn't Pope Gregory do something with the calendar? No, no, it wasn't a calendar. Pope Gregory was a Bible student. Pope Gregory was doing something that most of his predecessors did not do. He read the Bible. Ha ho! Yeah, what did he realize? There's Jews mentioned in the Bible all over the place, including the New Testament. Oh, I know. Yeah, I went to the uh, England. Pope Gregory determined. Whoa! Wait a minute! Wait! Wait! Stop! Stop! We can't blow away the Jews. You can't annihilate the Jews. You can't convert them all. You can't do that. Stop! 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 What Justinian's trying to do is wrong. We need the Jews. They need to be degraded. I mean, they're Christ killers. I mean, after all, but. We need the Jews because they have to be here when Messiah comes because he saves them. He can't save them unless there are some of them. So he calls off all the forced conversion stuff and says, you know, we can, we can let the Jews stay. They need to be slaves. There's no question about it. I mean, come on, they're Jews. But we don't need to kill them. And we don't want to convert them. Just let him be. That's Pope Gregory. I think that's one of the things that a fairly recent Pope actually apologized for. Six thirty-eight. Unbelievable. By the way, I just want to make a, a, a point here, especially those listening in Gastonia or in far-off places like Canada and uh, Trinidad and Tobago. Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan, yes. Um, if you think that Islam is a peaceful religion and you're actually sucking up the Kool-Aid of our, our uh, national media, you need to wake up. Islam was invented out of zip in 570. In 638, Islam conquered Jerusalem. Jerusalem became an Islamic town. Now, we've already got, from 570 to 670 would be 100 years. We're 40 years prior to that. We're 60 years prior to that. Right? So, 140 years, you've already got them banding together and fighting for their faith 
to the point where it's, he's taking Jerusalem. In some ways, that's even stronger than that, because I mean, Muhammad, I mean, just mentioned earlier, conquers um, Mecca. That's right. He, uh, he has a. Um, he, he's already worked him into a tizzy to take Mecca. Yeah, he's already he's already run multiple jihads. Yeah. By the time six thirty eight rolls around, I do believe the Muslims are already fighting each other too. Yep, or shortly thereafter. Yeah, so they um, Islam would end up partly converting and partly taking over the entire Middle East until eventually Constantinople falls on that wall. Yeah. Prior prior to uh, even And if it wasn't for the French, believe it or not, they would have run over Europe too. Well, prior prior to you're right, prior to uh, to all of that, we're getting to Charlemagne in seven eleven they took Spain. That's amazing. Um, the and fact the fast that fast food chain down to what seven one. <laughs> so they they go across the top of North Africa, across the water, and hit uh, hit the the western uh, part of Europe and take out Portugal and. Spain. It's 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 truly amazing. <coughs> all right. So while this all this is going on, what we have is Babylon, Israel. You've got North Africa, Egypt over here. Um, Portugal, Spain, and just, let's just say Europe over here. Right, so it's generally with the Mediterranean right in the middle, uh, Turkey along here, and so forth, but it gives you an idea. But basically, you've got Babylon and Israel with. Jews, there's very few left in Israel. You've got the Babylonian folks. The Bible actually says that a very few amount of the Jews that were sent into exile actually came back into the land. Most, the vast majority of them, stayed in Babylon. So you've got very few that returned to the land to rebuild with Nehemiah and Ezra and so forth. So the vast majority of Jews are in Babylon. You do have some in Egypt south of Israel, right? They, we, we're reading about the Exodus, which has come up out of Egypt into Israel and so forth. So in Babylon, we have now an explosion of education. And this is really what this whole era is about. Sura and Pembudita. are the two heads or um, largest cities uh, where we've got yeshivas, these yeshivot, these Talmudic Torah schools where we are training rabbis. There are tens of thousands of students learning the Talmud and the Torah in these two cities. And uh, 7-Eleven is our last date here where they take over Spain, so we're almost halfway, right? 
to 750,000, so 750 uh, at the halfway point. So we've got uh, we've got these two cities, and they are providing halakhic decisions for the rest of the world. Where people are, they're actually writing back to Babylon and saying, how should we do this? What's the way to perform this if this is the case? And these guys are coming up with answers. So we've got, in each one of these cities, and you can see Galut means Galut means exile. No, we, it's not a, it's not a need. That was an equal sign. I thought there might be an E on the loot, but I guess not. So race means head. Head. And galut? Exile. Head of the exile. This is, a, this is like the prince of the exile and where they're living. The exile. Exactly. Now, one of the... Um, the rules that they made was the Reish Galuta needed to be a descendant of King David. What do you suppose that was? It makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. Why does it make sense? Got the in the heir of kingship, so he's he has a natural lineage of leaders. Okay. So and actually, you'd want to take someone up with with that gift. And okay. Go further. He could be the Messiah. He could be the Messiah, because the Messiah will be of the lineage of David. He's supposed to be the king. King Messiah is of the lineage of David. So he's going to be Davidic. So, we've got these guys, and they're in charge. And in 740, we're almost midway on our wall now. Brilliant, an absolutely brilliant descendant of King David shows up. And he's expecting that he would be the Rish Galut. Is he here? He's passed over. And he has a little hissy fit. <laughs> so he rebels against the guy that was appointed by the Sultan of uh, the Babylonian city they were in. I can't remember if it was Sura or Pambudita. Um, but because he rebels against the Sultan, he's thrown in jail. Penalty of death. So he's got this very, very cool legal argument to get out of the death belt. Anybody remember what his his argument is to get out of it? This is so cool. He's brilliant. They they take him out to hang him. He's like, whoa, wait a minute! You think I'm 
going against the Sultan's order about the Jews and the Reis Galuta. No, 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 no. I'm actually practicing a different religion. I'm not Jewish. No. Different religion. I'm telling these people not to listen to this guy. Not because the Sultan made him the Reis Galuta. No, because I think that everything they're learning is a bunch of hooey. The whole rabbi thing and the Talmud, bad news. You don't want to be listening out there making that stuff up. And that whole Talmud, nonsense. And he gets out of the death penalty by claiming he's not practicing Judaism. What is he practicing? He's Karat. Karaism. He's a Karat. He's the first Karat. Teaches against the rabbis, teaches against the Talmud, the whole oral law things, a bunch of hooey, and he gets away with it. His name is Anan ben David. Anan ben David. Sort of anonymous, but not anonymous enough. Karaim. Karaim. He's the leader of the Karaim, or we know in English as the Karaites. He says the oral Torah is illegitimate. Almost at the, at the middle of the wall. So, what's happened in the world? Well, for hundreds of years, longer than our country has been alive, Babylon has been putting out thousands, tens of thousands of rabbinic scholars. The Reish Galuta is a Talmudic and Torah genius. Absolutely top shelf. No better. And these guys are providing a halakha for the entire planet. Times are changing. And the world is expanding. So Jews begin, as they finish their schooling, they begin to leave Babylon. So they're either going to go north from Babylon into Europe. All of these lands are controlled by Christians. Or they're going to go south and over the top of North America, uh, North Africa and into Portugal and Spain and they're going through Islamic lands so some of them end up in Spain some of them end up in Northern Europe that's pretty much where they're going <clears throat> Spain welcomes the Jews the Islamic people, the Muslims have no problem with the Jews. All the others go in the other direction, end up in Scandinavia, and are coming down into Europe. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 51, this half of the room. The other half of the room, open up to Obadiah. What chapter in Obadiah? No, thank you, thank you. <laughs> A very, very long one. <laughs> yeah. All right. 
Jeremiah and Obadiah. Yirmiyahu and Ovadia. Ovadia. Servant of Jeremiah chapter 51, verses 5 and 6, 27 and 28. It's Jeremiah 51, 5 and 6, 27 and 28. For neither Israel nor Judah has been forsaken by his God, the Lord of hosts, although their land is full of guilt before the Holy One of Israel. Flee from the midst of Babylon. Well, that's what they're doing. And each of you save his life. Do not be destroyed in her punishment, for this is the Lord's time of vengeance. He's going to render recompense to her. Verse 27. Lift up a signal in the land, blow a trumpet among the nations, consecrate the nations against her. Summon against her the kingdom of Ararat, Mini, and Ashkenaz. Appoint a marshal against her, bring up the horses like bristly locusts. Concentrate, consecrate the nations against her, the kings of the Medes, their governors, and all their perf- prefects, and every land of their dominion. There's Ashkenaz. So they show up because the Jews in northern Europe hear this word, Shkenazia, Scandinavia, Shkenazia, and they assume that they are the remnant of Ashkenaz. Obadiah 19, uh, 15, 19 and 21. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations, as you have done, it will done to, be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau, and those of the Shephelah and the Philistine plain also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. And the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel, who are exiles, that's a key phrase, exiles, right? Who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem, that's the guys we're talking about, who are in Sepharad, will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. We actually pray part of that on Shabbat. Well, if the guys that went to Shkenazia are the Ashkenaz, then these guys who went into Spain believe that they are the Sephirah. That's where we get Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jewry. It's a geographical and cultural separation of the people of Israel based on where they ended up. So the guys that are in the north in Europe and Scandinavia call themselves Ashkenazi and build their own customs and cultures there. And the guys that came across North Africa and went up into Portugal and Spain consider themselves Sephardic. It meant nothing at that time. But since they're now in two different places, building their own customs and culture, one one ends up saying, good Shabbos. The other ends up saying, Shabbat Shalom. Their, their speech patterns changed, their traditions of practicing changed, everything changed. Okay. So now you know where those guys come from. Now on the other side of the midpoint, we get to 800 and Charlemagne. And if you're not familiar with Charlemagne, you, you know, you need to read books like Robin Hood and stuff like that. 
Um, He's a little bit later. Knights of the Round Table, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, I'm sorry? Robin Hood's a little bit later. Robin Hood is later, but he references Charlemagne. Charlemagne is essentially the first European super king. The first super king, that's exactly right. Now, Charlemagne is cool. If you read Jewish history, not English history, if you read Jewish history, Charlemagne is cool because he likes Jews. Wonder why this guy likes Jews. Turns out his wife was the sister of the Reish Galuta. He married Jewish woman. And her brother is the head of the exile. Very cool. So he's really into Jews and lets them have a lot of leeway to do whatever they want. His son was known as Louis the Pious. And the Jews say he was a tzaddik. He didn't His go son real. is officially Jewish because of his mom? Well, the Jews lift him up. I won't get into the argument about whether you're Jewish, if your father's Jewish or your mother's Jewish. The bottom line was the guy apparently practiced Judaism because he was known by the Jews as a tzaddik. That's very cool. If you know anything about English history and what happened right after 1000, we get into the Crusades, and you know that they killed more Jews than anything else, you recognize that this man is extraordinarily unique in his position. Louis the Pious, it's like. Those two cities in Babylon, Sura, in Pamudita. In Sura, you've got Amram. Amram. Gaon. He's in Sura. He's a Gaon. That means he's a Talmud of genius. It means a Torah scholar par excellence. Amram Gaon wrote the new stock sitter that is almost verbatim what you're using today on that shelf. 1,300 years ago, this guy wrote what you're praying every day. That's extraordinary. I'm wrong. Go home. In 922, you had an anomaly that's never happened before and has never happened since. Anyone know what it is? There's two Rosh Hashanahs. You read in the paper, I can tell. That's good. The guys in Israel, the rabbis in Israel, the elders in Israel, claim that Tuesday, the coming to this coming Tuesday is Rosh Hashanah. Since word gets out, the guys that got the Babylonian scholars go, whoa, whoa, wait, stop. No, that's not true. It's Thursday. Big argument. When's Rosh Hashanah? Gotta know. How are you going to keep the festivals properly? 
It's the only time in all of history there's ever been two Rosh Hashanahs. But the way the postal system was, which was non-existent, there was no way to fix the problem before Rosh Hashanah actually happened. So half of the Jewish planet celebrated it on Tuesday, the other half celebrated it on Thursday. There's a 25-year-old man, and he has traveled from Egypt north into Israel and then over into Babylon. And he's brilliant. Before he's 25, he has actually published a grammar book to teach you Hebrew grammar. Before he's 25. In 928, they made him the Gaon of Surah. His name was Saadia ben Yosef al Fayumi. He was an Egyptian man, Wari Fez. And he is my hero. The first thing he did was to say, These guys messed up on Rosh Hashanah. It's the guys in Babylon that had it right. And he solidified the calendar from that time forward. His edict is, is actually influencing your calendar today. He wrote papers, he wrote books, and he gave lectures attacking the claims of the Karaites so that they became almost completely ineffective. In fact, he was so ardently, so verbally, so wonderfully against them to the point where Karaites almost disappeared from the face of the planet. Until when? 20 years ago, when they showed up in America as part of the Messianic movement. There had been virtually no Karite influence until then. He kicks a major wallop for almost a thousand years. Awesome dude. He added uh, credibility to the Mesoretic text, to the calendar, to the schools. In 950, we'll put it here, Aaron Ben Asher put out the Masoretic text. He lived in what town? In Israel? He lived in Tiberias, northwest side of Israel. He lived in Tiberias, and he published the Masoretic text. It's got all the vowel markings and all of the diacritical markings, and the uh, what do you sing from the the trove? All of that was in there. Do you know what we get from the Masoretic text? King James Bible. King James Bible. Hello, King James Bible came from this Masoretic text. It only caught on. It only had gravitas because Sa'adja Gaon said, hey, this is good stuff. That's 950. That's 50 years before we get to the end of the war. Well, what was that guy's name in 850? Aaron. 950. In 950? Yeah. You've got uh, Aaron Ben Asher. Is it on the paper? It is. It is. It's on the, it's on the, on the paper. Aaron Ben Asher. In the Masoretic text, 
who would stand out when they discover the Dead Sea Scrolls because exactly. the Masoretic text is not Almost. quite identical, Almost but shockingly verbatim. closely identical. That's exactly right. Despite the fact that the Dead Sea Scrolls are from a different sect That's right. and are over a, about a thousand years older than the Masoretic text. That's right. So you know, you've got the Dead Sea Scrolls that are, are stuck in caves right around here. And you've got the Masoretic text that this guy put together, and they're almost virtually identical. But Saadio said, yeah, this is the good stuff. And it wasn't even so. On, on that wall. I'm sorry? On that wall. Um, right before you shoot. Yeah, I think the Qumran scrolls is actually, yeah. That's where they were written, but that's not when they were stuck in the caves. Right, stuck in the caves. They were stuck in the caves after the cross. Oh, well, but I'm going to say, but the written... Absolutely. They were written beforehand, no question. The second in caves and, and So the the Quran text verified the Masoretes did their job. Yeah. Constantly and consistently in, and, 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 and just to clarify, right. like I mean the variations are, are small. I think Psalm twenty two and I think it's maybe a place in Isaiah where they're like noteworthy. Most of the time it's not that big of a deal, but more importantly, um, that means that the, the Tanakh Essentially, has one version mm -hmm. for a thousand years. Over a thousand. Yes. The well, at least despite the, regional differences, despite regional differences and language differences, right. the um, the uh, apostolic writings, unfortunately, um, can't make that claim. Have, I mean, depending on which Bible you, you may have a different Greek text altogether. Yeah. They actually vary so much. Well, the Greek text that the Missal Allen where the Westcott Court is made from is actually a compilation of fragments so that we have a majority text. Mm -hmm. We've got most of the things say this, while some of them say this. So it's a little bit, I wouldn't say it's more suspect, but you can certainly have a lot of reliability on a text that hasn't changed. And even with the differences, there's so much consistency. What I want you to recognize is Sa'adia knew the scriptures so well. He was able to look at the Masoretic text and go, that's the real deal. That's it right there. You can, you can take that. This is good stuff. That's amazing. All right, last 50 years, and we're done. What's happening in the world now? Well, Islam's foot, uh, firmly entrenched. Christianity is firmly entrenched. The Jews now have two different places where they live. And Israel is, um, you know, the least of it right now. And there has been a massive exodus from Babylon. Your Jews are no longer in Babylon. They're either in northern Scandinavia, Europe area, and practicing the Ashkenazi way of their faith and building that, or they went this way and they're in Spain and so forth. And we're going to see in the next 500 years that they get kicked out of both places. But you've got a, uh, a guy whose name you just need to know because he's last. The last guy in Babylon is Rav Haigatun. He's the last guy, he's a player. He's holding down the fort over here as everybody's leaving. Sad kind of thing. Now he's got a contemporary. His contemporary in the Ashkenazi world who's known as Rabbeinu Gershom 
his full name is Rabbeinu Gershom Ben Yehuda Meor Hagola. Rabbi Gershom, son of Judah, the light of the exile. So there was no power play. As Pembodita and Sura are becoming less and less effective and influential in the world, they see the Geonim and these rabbis that they trained taking the mantle of halakhic leadership and community leadership in both Spain and in Europe. Rabbeinu Gershom's in the north, and he's in the Ashkenazi. He's known as the grandfather of Ashkenazi Jewry. And he caused a major split between the Ashkenazi and the Sephardi. Major split. Because he laid down the law for the Ashkenaz. He said there were four things that no Orthodox Jew could do. First, a Jew could have only one wife. The Talmud says he can have four, provided he provides them clothing, food, and sexual rights. It can be a lot of fun, it'll wear you out pretty quick. Number two, a man cannot divorce his wife without permission. From whom? From his wife. Do you remember the Master's Day? She burnt the toast. I'm divorcing her. He gives her a writ of divorce. He gives her a get. The Master was way against that. Rabbi Rabbeinu Gershom said, you want to divorce your wife, you get her permission. I don't think the Sephardi liked that. Number three. A Jew cannot read someone else's mail. Kind of funny. Would you walk up to somebody's mailbox, open it up, slit open the letter? And read what was uh, what was there. They didn't that day. There's nothing private. And finally, the Jew could not remind a Baal Shuva of his former. Uh, how did he put it? Is former or previous shame. <clears throat> yeah. And I think isn't the first one more is more related to love right marriage. Uh, at, at the time wasn't that more of the discussion because in Sephardic culture I think that was still allowed and permissible. Yeah, it it could be. I, I, it I, could be. I, but the Talmud clearly says you can have up to four wives. Right. And he's disputing that and he may have also included the whole right. granted you know, deal. Be, be that as a man, I still don't think Sephardi were had had multiple wives. Agreed. I don't think that's. I don't think that was the uh, 
Right. That was the, the, the big death knell here, the, the brick. So I want you to look at this list. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, I didn't catch what four was. I, I, I see the word. I'm sorry. Baal Tshuva. What's a Baal Tshuva? Master of a master of the return. Right? Tshuva. Return. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Repentance. Repent. I return. Mm -hmm. So what, who's a master of the return? Who's a master of the repentance? One who has walked away from the faith. Maybe because of forcible conversion, he's got to be a Christian, and he finally comes back to the faith. Maybe one who didn't want to get killed and decides on his own he's going to practice something else. Maybe somebody who just stops practicing Judaism and kind of tries to blend in and not be noticed. I would say that all three sound like you and I. In some way, in our lives, we've tried to blend in with the culture and not stick out and not be too religious. In some way, we've abrogated what we really should have done, sometimes simply out of ignorance. I didn't know I was supposed to keep Shabbat. Nobody told me that. You know that? So, so his, his concept here in this fourth one was, you may not, it is absolutely forbidden for you to remind them of their former shame. They come into the community and they want to be a part don't remind them. Gotcha. Welcome them and treat them like just everybody else. Yeah. Now I got to tell you, I think that is the is a is a hallmark of our community here. We've got a lot of guys that come from a bad background. We don't need to do the Christian mode of well, get up there and give us your testimony. Tell us how bad you were. Let's review all the nastiness so that we can glorify God with what He's done in your life. What about your hooey? I don't need to know what you did. I don't need to know at all. God saved you? Good. He saved me too. Let's move on. And that's where Rabbeinu Gershom was coming from. Now you look at these four. Which one do you think caused the biggest rift with the Sephardi? Two. Yeah. I think you're right. I think it was number two. Because it was commonplace that women, you know, if I want a divorce, I can. All I have to do, it's in the Torah. Give her a get, and I'm done. Lack of continuity and a lack of commitment. Now, that's not in any way to put down the Sephardi. I'm just saying that out of that list, it seems to me that was probably the one, because as, as, uh, uh, as Jonathan said, it probably was not the fact that they could only have one wife. There is no record of gross polygamy in Ashkenazi or uh, Sephardic Jewelry. It's just not there. Now here's the better question. Which one of these do you think are the greatest influence on Judaism? Why three, son? They became the mammoth. Peter's right. When personal correspondence from kings and emissaries and ambassadors was being shuttled back and forth amongst all those cool little tiny countries in Europe, who could be trusted with the letters? It wasn't the Three Musketeers. <laughs> It was the Jews. They were great with finance. 
and they were great with keeping their mouths shut. And they were forbidden from reading anyone else's mail. And because of that, they rose to a status of influence and honor and became counselors to kings. And there are stories in the next 500 years of great men that were influenced by Jews in their council. What are your questions on this unbelievably cool era? Out of this era, you get Islam, which is affecting you today. You get the sitter that you're using every day. You get the Masoretic text from which you read the scriptures themselves. And you get four edicts, which I believe are actually part of your own culture in this very community. Question. If that was the Ashkenazi, only the Ashkenazi actually rose in prominence because Sephardics weren't necessarily held with that same standard. Unfortunately, if you think about it, if I say that Jews do such and such, even if it's not monolithic, it's considered that way. And that's what I was sort of getting at. I was, I was trying to figure out if it was... Yeah. Clearly, the folks down in Spain were is, is where you get most of your Torah scholars. It's where you get most of your uh, Talmudic geniuses and most of the writings that we read. We're going to see that in the next 500 years. You're reading commentary written by the Sephardi, not by the Ashkenazi. But while they're interested in dealing with the Torah and the texts, these in the north are actually dealing with heads of state. Well, and and not, not long after this, things get really bad in Spain and, and, uh, and in France as well. And that's where a, a lot of Jews leave there and they go back to northern Africa, t- Tunisia, Morocco, some, some go back to um, Damascus even. So, so, so they didn't have as much time to thrive that's right. And then on top of that, you've got the, um, there are some in the Sephardic world that are very influential. Um, Rambam mm-hmm. is a, uh, sorry, Ramban, I believe, is the, Rambam. which one is the, the doctor, physician? Rambam. Rambam. Physician to the caliphate, the head of the Islamic that's right. regime. That's right. So they have, um, I mean, but again, to, to Jonathan's point, it's not in, it's not in Europe. Right. Well, he, they've come up. Yeah, no, leave Spain. Right. And and, and because they were Indonesia. they were pushed out of Spain. Right. I mean, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Why? Because <laughs> Jews could were pushed out. Yeah. Right. So you've you've got complete exodus of Jews. But it happened in Spain and Portugal sooner than it did in the rest of Europe. So should we connect the dot like Colby was in saying that Christopher Columbus was Sephardic? Um, I think we can, I, I think there's, I would have no problem arguing Christopher Columbus was Jewish. Without question. 
Well, you just can't explain why he chose to leave and sail on the day he did, when the very next day, all of the Jews were expelled from Spain. Less than a year later, they were expelled from Portugal. England had already expelled all the Jews because of the uh, beginning of the uh, uh, the conquest. What was it? Crusades. The Crusades. So, yeah, but we're that's you're now in the next 500 year period, and we're not talking about that tonight. No, no. I really did want us to focus. I think we skip this 500 year period because you know it's just people you don't recognize. It's guys whose names you you know. I've got to constantly look at the paper to remember. Um, but if if we were to know the scriptures like Sa'adia, if we were to know the language the way he did, if we were to be passionate about supporting and preserving what we're being taught and arguing vehemently in books, in lectures, and in uh, articles about those that are arguing against our faith and trying to destroy it from within like a cancer the way carrots do I think that we'd have a different mindset which is why I opened with that uh, patriotic uh, press there if if you want to pick up on any of the guys that we just talked about they wouldn't sit still for what's going on in our own country they would step up they would write they would speak. They'd give lectures. They'd write books. I'm, I am truly at odds with myself on whether or not we should waste time with politics. I really uh, on, on the one hand, I think that God has blessed us with a place where we can live, thrive, and raise our families and bless Him. And then we should fight to keep it. And we should be part of the battle. At the others, on the other side, I say to myself, it's not our fight. I'm just passing through. My king is not the guy in charge of this. My king, I'm just an ambassador. And I could leave this country at any time because I'm just here as an ambassador when my king returns to Sagrada. And I honestly, at this point, do not know the right answer. But I am certainly leaning towards, now that I have two grandchildren, one who I can't see yet, and one who I can hold her hand, I am leaning more towards trying to make a difference and arguing more publicly. This guy gets up and and says, you you did nothing. This happened and you stood by and did nothing. They did this and you did nothing. That bothers me. Perhaps you men can give me more wisdom on that as uh, time draws nigh. Comments, questions? Good. 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 Praise God. 
I'm glad that you guys that hadn't heard it before got a chance to, to hear it. There's such deep stories that go on in there, and uh, um, some of it is extraordinarily cool. As you look before the cross, just the intrigue and political nonsense going on right before the master shows up and goes, da-da, is, uh, is great. As we turn the corner uh, to the 1,000-year mark, Rabbi Rabbeinu Gershon actually taught all three of Rashi's teachers. You think Rashi's a great guy. Who did he learn from? The three guys he learned from? All learned from this man. Reminds me of... Reminds me of Shem. Hmm. Because Shem was the teacher of Abraham, hmm. Isaac, and Jacob. Hmm. You got a you got a player there that's going to influence many generations. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly what it is. All right, let's pray. Good Father, we thank you for the uh, for the time. I thank you for these men, and for all the busyness of life that's going on right now with uh, Johnny looking for a job and um, for Sean on his anniversary getaway with his bride Jeremiah, just getting married. Isaac and Christine away at their honeymoon. It just, it goes on and on. Father, we're grateful for life itself and for the robustness that you allow us to live. We turn to you now and we thank you for the breath of life, the word of God, and the soon coming of your Son to bring redemption to this land, that the curse may be put aside, that you would set up shop and reign in Jerusalem over your people, And we'd all get a plot of land, a couple of fig trees, a little bit of cottage cheese, some yogurt, blueberries, blackberries, and just an awesome couple of bottles of wine. Father, we thank you for the time ahead that is coming. We pray for your soon return. Come quickly, Lord Yeshua. Maranatha. We pray these things. B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach got an in the name of Yeshua the Messiah and our Lord. And these men said, Amen. Amen. Thank you.